0: Acts chapter 23, verse 1, and looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Paul is now standing before the great Sanhedrin council, and present are the high priest and many other powerful Jewish leaders that were pretty sick of Paul and the faith that he was promoting. So there's a lot going on in this verse, and it takes time to study and get a clue, and this is where good commentaries come in handy. Good commentators are very helpful in discovering the depth of Scripture that we don't see on the surface. So in an attempt to bring a better understanding, I'm going to refer to a couple of commentators that over the years I've trusted and found useful for studying. Verse 2, And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Verse 3, Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? In his daily study Bible, William Barclay, who's a commentator that I like to refer to now and again, he offers this introduction into verse 1 and 2. He says this, There was a certain audacious recklessness about Paul's conduct before the Sanhedrin. He acted like a man who knew that he was burning his boats. Even his very beginning was a challenge. To say brethren, referring back to verse 1, was to put himself on equal footing with the court. For the normal beginning when addressing the Sanhedrin was, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel. When the high priest ordered Paul to be struck, he himself was transgressing the law, which says, he who strikes the cheek of an Israelite strikes as it were the glory of God, calling him a whitewashed wall. To touch a dead body was for an Israelite to incur ceremonial defilement. It was therefore custom to whitewash tombs so that none might be touched by mistake. So Paul is in effect calling the high priest a whitewashed tomb. Paul begins his meeting with the council basically on the wrong foot. Puts himself on their level. The high priest is like, smack him. He smacks him, and then Paul comes back and insults the high priest. So it's not off to a good start. And this high priest, Ananias, this is not the Ananias of chapter 5, who was struck down by God for lying, or the Ananias of Acts chapter 9, who prayed for Paul. Rather, this is the high priest whose reputation was that of a corrupt ruler who was in cahoots with the Romans. So Ananias wasn't a good guy. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? Verse 5. And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So why didn't Paul recognize the high priest? He's familiar with his counsel, how it met and everything. He was a Pharisee. So scholars offer a few possibilities. Some say that he was gone for so many years that he didn't know the guy. Or another possibility that Paul was being sarcastic, basically saying that uh, this guy who's the high priest, oh, I didn't know you were the high priest, you don't act like it. Or as Paul writes in Galatians 6.1, see with what large letters I am writing you with my own hand. Some scholars suggest that Paul had very poor eyesight from all the suffering he had endured. I think that Paul, because he took a beating for several minutes the day prior, his face was probably so swelled up he couldn't make out anyone. In verse 6 it says, Now when he perceived that one part was the Sadducees and the other Pharisees, so he's perceiving. It's not he instantly recognizes him. He kinda of senses it. He kinda of, he knows. But it seems to suggest that maybe there's a little time needed to understand that. I don't know what they wore at the council, but I'm sure that there were flowing robes and all kinds of distinctions. So it's possible that Paul just he couldn't see him because his eyes were swelled shut. And in verse one, we remember that It says looking intently at the council. So does that mean he was mad dogging them or was he just looking at him like I do when I go to the gym while watching TV, riding a stationary bike? And the reason I'm looking intently is because I don't wear my old man glasses to the gym and I have to look at the TV intently to see it. So is it an eyesight thing? Is it a sarcasm thing? We don't know. But we do know that whatever it was, it says that he did not recognize him. And I think that it probably had something to do with the beatdown that Paul endured the day prior. Just my thoughts. Could be something altogether different, but I believe Paul sustained facial trauma during that assault that could have affected his vision. Verse 6. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out to the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. Paul was a Pharisee until his conversion at Damascus. He was a zealous religious leader known for his passion and advancing in the order of the Pharisees faster than his peers. He knew the scriptures. He believed the scriptures. He held the scriptures in high esteem. And he knew that the Pharisees in the room were of the same mind. And the resurrection of the dead and the hope of everlasting life was a fundamental belief to the Pharisees. But he also knew the other order of religious leaders, the Sadducees. And they were also present, and they were on the opposite end of the spiritual spectrum. They could be compared with our modern liberal scholars, who really poo-poo the authority of the scriptures and the supernatural reality expressed within them. So the two orders are at odds with each other, spiritually, scripturally, and philosophically. So Paul uses this to his advantage. Verse 7, And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the whole assembly was divided. Verse 8, For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Verse 9, then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes and the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel did speak to him? Verse 10, and then the dissension became violent, and the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring them into the barracks. So the Tribune, who put this whole thing together, says, look, you guys, hash this out. This is causing a lot of problems. Now, all of a sudden, it's like, whoa! Okay, everyone, go get him. Take him back. We're done. He realizes he bit off more than he could chew. Something is happening here that I believe escapes the casual reader. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths, To those who are spiritual. So the Pharisees may not have been believers in Jesus, but they did believe in the spiritual realm and the communication we have with that realm. And in this setting, the Sadducees think the Pharisees and Paul are crazy for their superstitious beliefs, much like modern day skeptics view those of us who hold these views. But to the person who is tapped into the spirit realm through faith in God, we sense things differently. And even in the middle of chaos, we can discern truth versus lies. So the Pharisees are possibly being inundated by the Holy Spirit testifying to the truth that Paul is proclaiming, and their way of expressing this without saying, hey man, I sense that Paul is speaking by the power of the Holy Spirit. They simply pose the question, what if? Hey, maybe we're wrong. Maybe we're thinking on the wrong track. Basically saying, look, we believe these things are possible. And think about our own life experiences. Have you ever not wanted to profess your faith in something or someone openly, but you still secretly believe? I don't want to say anything, but you know, I think that's right. I believe that. I've met a lot of people who don't want anything to do with church, but they say things like, yeah, I believe in Jesus Christ. They don't say it in public, but in private, they're like, you know, listen, I do kind of believe this stuff. There's some element of belief there that is hidden. So the Pharisees, they come to Paul's rescue, sort of. They cause a disturbance, and the tribune's is like, yank him out of there. We're done. So he pulls Paul out of the room. He gets him back to safety, and I can only imagine the conversation between Paul and the tribune on the way back to the barracks. Yeah, he's probably like, who are you, man? Paul's like, dude, I'm just doing what God says to do. That's all I'm doing. Verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And again, Rome's a capital city. That's a big calling. Yeah, you're going to Rome, man. You're going to the big city now. So in the midst of all this chaos and drama, Jesus shows up. And there's no reason why we should doubt this passage or doubt that this can't happen to us. When believers say they know Jesus and unbelievers don't know what they mean by that, it really means that, look, we know his presence. We sense him when he's near us. I feel his presence in my life every once in a while. I don't feel it every day by any means, but I feel that time when I'm in prayer or in worship or something, I feel a closeness to him. I feel like he's right there. And he is. But as far as being bodily and visible, he's not. And he may have been visible here. We don't know. But we do know that he was with him and he spoke to him. And when I don't feel his presence, at least I have confidence that he is with me. It's hard to explain to someone who hasn't experienced the real presence of God. But to another believer who has, it's no big deal. It's like, yeah, man, I was praying the other night and Jesus just really showed up. You know, we say things like that. Well, obviously, he's everywhere. He's God. But what that means is I really had a connection with him. And a believer who knows that will say, oh, right on, man. I love it when that happens. But unbelievers would be like, what? What are you talking about? Similarly, we who have experienced miracles seem like fanatics to those who haven't. But to those who have, it's like talking about the weather. It's not a crazy deal. So here, Paul is experiencing the Lord's presence. Visibly or not visibly, we don't know, but it really doesn't matter. What matters is that Paul knows Jesus is standing by his side, and then Jesus updates his mission. You know, we have the luxury of reading Paul's story and seeing a glimpse into his life, but at this time, Paul is really unaware of what tomorrow will bring, and with the way things went with the Sanhedrin, he probably needs encouragement. And that's what Jesus does. I'm here, Paul. And what you did here, you're going to do in Rome. So Paul gets dispatched to Rome. Verse 12, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Yeah, I'm sure they prayed about this and they want to do what's right in the eyes of God because they're righteous and holy men. Yeah, let's murder him, which is against the law. They couldn't kill people. Despite the fact the law says that you can kill someone for this or that, there was a process and this didn't meet the criteria. These were murderers who thought they were doing things for God and actually they were doing the devil's work. And we have to be careful of that. We could think that we're being righteous when, in fact, we're being evil. Verse 13, there were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. Verse 14, they went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notices to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So Paul has done nothing. To warrant capital punishment. And he has made an attempt to testify on his behalf, but they wouldn't accept it. And then we look at who is involved. These Jews went to who? The high priest and the elders. Hey, let's make a conspiracy to commit murder on an innocent man, a fellow Jew, a Roman citizen. So 40 men vowed not to eat until Paul is dead. Funny thing is, Jesus said to Paul, You're going to Rome. That means Paul's going to live. And these men are going to be hating life when they discover the Romans have transported him to another city. I think this is cool. The devil says, take him out. They say, okay. God says, no. So they're going to be hungry. Verse 16. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. So his nephew gets word and lets Paul know what's going on. Verse 17. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. Now, Paul has established himself as a Roman citizen, and that gave him rights that non-citizens didn't have. So, in the barracks, Paul, still an uncondemned Roman, is afforded the opportunity to be heard. He tells one of the centurions, hey, let this kid go talk to the tribune. Had Paul not been a Roman citizen, probably wouldn't have been allowed to do that. Verse 18, So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Verse 19, The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked privately, What is it that you have to tell me? Verse 20. He said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though we were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. Verse 21. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. Oh, okay. Good to know. Verse 22. So the tribune dismissed the young man charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. So Understanding the Tribune now has intel on an ambush of an uncondemned Roman, and that's likely going to affect his men, they're going to be put in danger too. He knows he needs to get Paul out of the city, because if he fails and Paul is killed, people know about it, and if he is investigated and is found negligent in protecting an uncondemned Roman citizen in his custody, man, that's a bad day for him. Verse 23. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready, 200 soldiers and 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. So the night began at 6 p.m., third hour of the night, three hours after 6 p.m. would be 9 p.m. So this is a lot of people. Two centurions, each centurion oversaw 100 people. So he gets 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen. That's a lot of people for one guy. That's quite an escort. Verse 24, and provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. The tribune is sending Paul up to the governor and saying, yeah, this guy's in danger here. Take all these soldiers, these 400 plus people, get him up to Antipetus at least because from Jerusalem to that place was country roads that were dangerous. From Antipetus on up to Caesarea was a lot more open road, much safer. So they had to get him at least up to there. So Paul gets a horse. Now when Jesus said, you're going to Rome, Paul, it was unclear how Paul was going to get there. Traveling was slow and expensive, plus Rome was a long way off from Jerusalem. And, add to that, coordinating everyone needed to accompany him as well as the dangers that faced him. And, how's Paul going to get out of Jerusalem? How's he going to get out of this mess? He was still in custody. And now he's got 40 men that want to kill him. But Jesus says, you're going to Rome. This had to look pretty challenging for Paul, but remember Peter when he was in prison about to be executed by Herod. Things looked bleak for him, but God miraculously delivered him out of the situation with no real effort. Remember, God can do things beyond our imagination. He takes care of us. In Psalm 23, verse 4, it says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil my cup overflows. I love that verse, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. When we are surrounded by people that are our enemies, God takes care of us. Like he puts a big table right there. Here, here's a table. Here's a chair. Kick back. Put your feet up. All the enemies are just sitting there going, I hate you. You're like, yeah, whatever, man. God takes care of me. Not to worry, Paul. I'll take care of you. And he sends Paul off with a huge security detail in the middle of the night while keeping him in custody. Basically, God knows what's going to happen. He's in control and he makes things happen according to his will. And his will in this story was to send Paul to Rome. And Paul would get to Rome alive, healthy, protected. And Paul, at the point that he was in, was like, I don't know how this is going to happen, but I know that Jesus told me I'm going to Rome. I have a couple of major stories like that where God said, you're going to do this. And I'm like, there is no way. This is going to work. No way. I cannot see this working. But I know that you said to do it, and I can't see it happening. And it happened because God's good. He still does these things. So Jesus is going to deliver Paul to Rome in style. Roman custody, safe from the murderers, well fed, protected, and he gets a free ride on a horse. He didn't even have to walk. Verse twenty-five. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Verse twenty-six. Claudius Lysias. That's the name of the tribune. To his excellency, the governor Felix. Greetings. Verse 27. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with soldiers and rescued them, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Verse 28. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought them down to their council. Notice he didn't say he took him into custody. Verse 29. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. Verse 30. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So he's sending Paul off safely to Felix's custody in Caesarea, which was a Roman city. And then he's going to tell all the people that had a problem with Paul, Go up there and argue. Verse 31. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Now Antipotus. Antipotus was a city built by Herod the Great, the one who tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. Herod's father was named Antipater, so he named the city after his father, Antipatris. It was about 40 miles from Jerusalem. So they were 40 miles on horseback heading up the road. Verse 32, And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. So the soldiers returned, but the horsemen continued to go. The security detail breaks down, and they head home. And they have about 25 miles to go to get to Caesarea. Verse 33, when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. They make it to Caesarea, which was, again, an important town, a lot of Roman presence. And after the destruction of Jerusalem, it became the capital city in the region. It was the home to the governor, Felix, who Paul would stand trial before. But Caesarea would be safe for Paul. Also, Philip the Evangelist, we remember that he lived there. And when Paul came through Caesarea on his way to Jerusalem, Philip visited him, as did a bunch of disciples. He's not going to be alone in the city, verse 34. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, verse 35, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's Praetorium. So there's a prison there in the the palace area. So Paul is kept under Roman guard, receiving the privilege of citizenship, whereas if he were not, Paul, well, he'd likely be dead. We're going to find out in the next chapter that Paul had a lot of privileges while he was kept under guard, and his friends were allowed to come and visit him for two years. So he's locked up for two years, but he has privileges to have visitors. So despite Paul being in Roman custody, he's protected, and he's fed, and allowed to see his friends regularly for two years. Do you think that God is using this situation to keep Paul's calling to spread the gospel alive and well? I do. And in the midst of suffering for Christ, if we open our eyes and we look at the big picture, eternal things may be happening. And sometimes those situations are difficult, but it's because of those situations that those eternal things are brought about. Just by a word, just by an act, just by some little token of love, or a step of faith, something little in that difficult situation that would not have otherwise happened unless the situation was difficult. So we keep our eyes open to these difficult moments, knowing that God's hes in it. He's doing something there, and he's doing something in Paul's life as well. So God's work continues as Paul makes his slow journey to Rome on the government's dime. And he will eventually make it to Rome. But all the while, God is there. And it's not like this is a happy time for Paul. He's in jail. He's got two years under his belt by the time he gets to Rome. And in Rome, he's going to be executed. So on the way to Rome, he knows what's up, he knows where he's going, and he knows he's going to bear witness before the vile Nero, the emperor who was psychotic and evil, and who would ultimately kill Paul. And Paul knew it. He knew that he was going to be dead. But Paul stayed the course, and because he believed and stayed the course, amazing things happened. And even for those people in Caesarea, just think about it. This little church is starting there. These believers are getting it, and now all of a sudden they've got Paul for two years. Like the Ephesians, they get his teaching, they get his presence, they get his wisdom, all that kind of stuff. Yo, Paul, I got a question for you. You know, yeah, what's up? Hey, in the scriptures it says this, and then you get Paul's explanation. They got their professor of the Institute of Faith right there in the hometown. So Paul would be blessed being there and being able to share with them. They would be blessed by having Paul there, and he was protected because God had a plan, and the plan would come to be. And God has a plan for each one of us, and it will come to be. The question is, Are we going to act like Paul and continue and persevere no matter what? And in those difficult moments, really look ahead and say, you know what, some cool things I know are happening here, even when I don't see them. Or are we going to withdraw and whine about our lives? I think that staying on that narrow, difficult road is the only way to go, because that's where life is. And Jesus said there are few that find it. So may you and I be part of that group, the few. And we do that by trusting in him. And as we trust in Jesus, we will be blessed. Thank you.